Well, good morning. Turn with me once more in your copy of the Scripture, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be closing the letter today, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is rare that I um, do not distill a main point of a text because I, I, that is, I'm committed to that, generally speaking, as a preaching practice. But the main point here is to give a greeting and a final benediction. That is the main point. And so instead of giving some very awkward main point with six staccato imperatives, I'm going to structure the sermon according to these little imperatives and these exhortations. So we don't have a main point that's either so long no one can remember it or so vague it's not helpful. Because that would be... Be silly. In in a text, aside from some debated grammar in terms of how these, some of these little phrases are translated, this text is about as straightforward as it gets. But before we dive in, let's just remember the ground that we've covered. Remember the ground that we covered. We heard the introductions to both of these letters, and it feels a bit like the end of a saga. Some of the saga, many of you are not here for in 1 Corinthians, but this has been an epic back and forth. Multiple letters, there's been intrigue, there's been scandal, there's been tears, there's been hurt, there's been divisions, there's been immorality, there's been a defense of Paul's apostolic ministry, there's been theological problems. Paul has visited twice He says, I'm coming to you a third time. And this is the last letter to the church at Corinth before Paul's last known visit to Corinth. So this is the conclusion of something that is a long time coming. We're finally getting to the very end of it all. The curtain drops here in terms of inspired text on the situation at Corinth. So there's some weight to these things. And Paul chooses these last verses Carefully, you'll notice that if you go through the other letters, some of them have endings that feel similar, and in some senses, in some senses they are, but they're not exactly the same thing. They're not exactly the same thing. They're handpicked. So I want to listen carefully this morning. I want to help us listen carefully to what Paul says, a closing manifesto. You know what a manifesto is? It's a declaration of policy or aims. It's a declaration of policy or aims. And that's what we get here, a declaration of aims. Be about such things, church at Corinth. Be about such things. And what are those things? I'm going to suggest that we get six imperatives. 
Six imperatives at the end of this long saga. It all boils down in terms of communication to this church to this right here. What's the last thing he wants this church to hear? Shockingly, perhaps, the first thing he says in parting to a struggling church is rejoice. (laughs) So if you've been here for the last couple sermons and you've seen the context of what's going on, these final warnings, I don't want to have to use my authority severely. I'm going to be kicking out of the church, kicking people out of the church. And then remember in in the original text of the New Testament, you don't have like a little section break that says final greetings. It just continues on. His next word is rejoice. Rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice. After what I just said, I said I'm going to come, probably kick some people out. Listen to me, please. We're praying for your restoration. I don't want to have to be severe with my use of authority. Finally, rejoice. In fact, it's, it's so odd that some commentators actually think that it's the conclusion of, of another letter or something. Okay, I think their arguments are unpersuasive, but just you have to let the oddness of it sit with you. But this is consistent with one of the goals Paul's has already, Paul has already laid out in chapter 2, verse 3, their joy. Their joy. He labors for their joy. And it dawned on me that this kind of exhortation really only makes sense if everything Paul has said about Jesus and living in light of him so far is true. To say these kinds of difficult things and to have a church experience some of these difficulties and end with rejoice is only possible because of the gospel. Only on the foundation of Christian hope can someone say rejoice in a context like these. A non-Christian letter that largely is criticizing and rebuking a group of people for their upbuilding and then ends with an exhortation to rejoice from the person who just did the rebuking is almost unthinkable. How could you possibly rejoice after that? Because the answer is the gospel is true regardless of what they've done. Gospel is still true. The gospel is true regardless of how they've attacked Paul. It's, it's, it's there regardless of what he said to them by way of rebuke. The promises are still true. And Paul says, I want you to have joy. Rejoice. Command. Not to be giddy and smiling all the time and skipping around always singing hymns or something. That's not the idea. This is a kind of deep-seated joy. It's a kind of gladness that even suffering and rebuke and division and perhaps even scandal cannot rob you of. It's not a fleeting feeling. It is a deep-seated existential joy and a gladness of soul not can be confused with a happiness, a momentary happiness of heart or mind. Not the same thing. It's rooted in something deeper. It's rooted in something more foundational than the whims and waves of everyday life. Rejoice, he tells this church after all this. The thing he says is be restored. It's a passive in the Greek. Yes, it just sounds a little awkward in English. ESV tries to help you out here. But it's a passive. Be restored. Be restored. In 19, excuse me, in chapter 13, verse 9, that's what he prays, right? Look back up there with me. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. 
He's saying, we pray for your restoration. And this word restoration here, it's the idea of bringing something back to what it should be. So if you're familiar like restoring a car, or restoring a house, something like that, the idea is bringing it back to either what it was or in some cases uh, what it should be. Sometimes in the, in the New Testament, the same word is translated mended here, to mend something. One commentator just explained this idea beautifully. Listen to what he says. He says, This is an exhortation to a divided church that its members recover theological, spiritual, and practical unity in Christ. Paul's injunction, be reconciled to God, has its essential accompanying counterpart, be restored to one another. It's a package deal. It's a package deal for Paul. Because, our, because of our union in light of Christ and the gospel, we can't be restored to Christ without also aiming for restoration with one another, restoration within the body of Christ, mending the body of Christ where it is needed and appropriate. Surely, Paul understands, brothers and sisters, this is not going to be easy. He understands. He's not some Spock-like character who doesn't get social dynamics. Have you heard what's going on in this church? Have you heard the divisions? Have you heard the things that have happened? Have you heard what Paul has said? Have you heard the vast degree of emotional responses that have happened at Corinth and anger? It doesn't stop him from saying it, though. It doesn't stop him from saying it. He knows that to say, be restored here, is going to take, listen very carefully, it's going to take a lot of hard conversations. It's going to take a lot of awkwardness. It's going to take a lot of tears. But he says, be restored. Be restored. Even if that's what it takes. Because that's what it will take. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Another passive. Be comforted. There's a bit of grammatical translational debate on this one. You have a superscript almost certainly in your Bible that takes you down to the bottom of the page. It says something like, listen to my appeal. It's because the word is sometimes translated to exhort, to exhort. So the passive version of that is something like listen. Um, but here's the deal. This, this, this word, about half the time it occurs in this letter, it, it means comfort. Like in the first chapter, we hear that a couple times. And then the, about the other half of the time, it means to exhort. But in the passive voice, all four times it occurs, it means comfort. Comfort. And this idea, again, of being comforted is consistent with part of Paul's purpose outlined in chapter 1 that we just heard read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. Two, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, Corinthians. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. There's a lot of comfort going on there. So I think we're on good grounds, both lexically and contextually, to say he is, he is concluding the letter in the way that he started. Be comforted. And he, again, he is appealing to this church in light of everything that has happened and everything, listen, that is going on in that church at the moment. Be comforted. 
He wants people to taste and experience the comfort that Christ offers. Particularly by, by heeding what Paul has said in this letter. So here's not what he's saying. Be really comfortable in your sin and divisions. You know the things that you're hanging on to that you shouldn't be? You know all the, these divisions? I want you to be comforted in those. That's not what he's saying. Part of, the whole com- part of the whole aspect of comfort that he's talking about here is living in light of the things that he said. That's partially what brings the comfort. It's not living in falsehood. It's not living opposing the gospel in Christ and forgiveness and unity. It's by heeding those things and seeking those things that you can taste the comfort of Christ. Trying to just kind of conjure it up in your soul by yourself and give yourself a comfort talk or something. That's not what he has in mind here. That's not what he has in mind. That's not how you put on the comfort of Christ. And we're going to come back to that later. We're going to come back to that later in the application. He's asking them to put on the comfort of Christ by holding on to Christ, holding on to the promises, and how to live in light of that. Be comforted, he says. Be comforted. And in that comfort, be of one mind. Or agree. Agree. We certainly Remember the dissension that was outlined in chapter 12. You look back at verse 20 of chapter 12, his first of two fears there, if you'll recall. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. He's already said this once in in, uh, in the first letter, 1 Corinthians one ten. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He is asking for unity, brothers and sisters, not uniformity. He is not asking everyone to agree on everything, period, with no context. He knows they don't. He knows they won't. And that's not the ask or the imperative. He knows that people will still question his, his action and his decisions and his status as a leader, no matter how much he appeals or explains. There are a vast variety of things upon which they can disagree, but they need to be united in hope and faith and love and holiness. That's where they need to be united. There, listen, there is room for so much diversity in the body of Christ, far more than a lot of what, what you would be led to believe these days. There is room for so much diversity in the body of Christ, so much inclusion. But brothers and sisters, there isn't room for diverse opinions on the necessity of hope, faith, love, and holiness. There's not room for diversity on those. There might be room for diversity about what those look like when they come out in the wash of life. Okay? But there's no room for the person who says, I don't think biblical holiness really matters. I don't think we need faith. Hope is futile. Love is optional. Can you imagine? That, that, that's not, there's not room for diverse, diversity of opinion on those particular things. They are the foundational elements. They are necessary elements that come with embracing Christ and living in light of them. Paul says, agree with one another. Be of one mind in the things that knit you together in Christ. Be of one mind in the things that knit you together in Christ. 
And flowing out of that, Paul has a foundation to say the next part, to be at peace or to live in peace with one another. So this is kind of the dispositional side of agreement, the kind of the social complement. So agree with one another says, you know, hold to the faith in Christ and promises and the hope that I've proclaimed. Okay, that's those elements, the faith, hope, love, holiness, claim to those things, one mind. And, but there's a dispositional part of it as well, more of an interpersonal part. Be at peace says, interpersonally, let there be calm and not conflict and warring on account of those things you agree on. Because you agree on these things, you're convicted, share these convictions about these things right here, let there be interpersonal peace among you, not the division, not the warring. You know, you can agree with someone and still not be at peace with them at all. It's called tension. We might agree on all the facts, hold all the same things, but we don't have peace. This is one of the, just kind of like comfort. This is one of those instructions that's almost to the heart. Have peace. Be comforted. That's not something you can raise your hand and do or put your feet to action. Someone could legitimately say, how do I be comforted? It's not something I'm supposed to just believe. It's not something I can go do. He's given, just like earlier in the letter, where he tells them to widen their hearts. It gives a command to the heart. It's a little bit interesting space. Be comforted. Be at peace. He's already said agree. Okay, we can agree. We can figure out these things. But have peace dwell among you. Live in peace. Because he knows what can happen when this exhortation is ignored, and he points it out in Galatians 5.15. He says to the churches in Galatia, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And let me just say that the church that tolerates prolonged lack of peace, even if it's low grade, even if it's low grade, church that tolerates prolonged lack of peace is signing their death warrant. They are signing their death warrant. Be at peace. Live in peace. Do not try to stuff whatever this is back in the back, back here. And try to, no, actually live in peace. Prolong lack of peace again. It's not an option. The whole thing will fall apart. All three of these things particularly live in peace. And he says, if you do, there is an incredible promise. There is an incredible promise here. The, the presence of the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, I don't want to overinterpret or overapply here and build some large theology on a passing comment in a closing of a letter. But he does hold out this amazing correlation between these things, aiming for restoration, comforting one another, agreeing with one another, living in peace, and the actual presence of God in your church. Notice it doesn't say, like, live in peace and you'll have peace. That would be a meaningless thing to say. That's not what he says. He says, you do these things, ending with live in peace, and the God, and then he describes God, the God of love and peace, will be with you. The presence of God will be with you. Not those virtues will be with you. The God who is those things will be with you. So just ask yourself, if someone were to say, how do you get the presence of God to be with you uh, in a church? How, how do you get that? Well, there might be quite a few answers. 
But would your answer, honestly, seriously, would one of your answers be, here's how, here's how you can court the presence of God in your church. Rejoice. Aim for, aim for restoration. Be comforted with who Christ is. Agree with one another. Live in peace. That's how you can court the very presence of God in your church. Now, you might say another, a variety of other things that could be true and accurate. I think there's not like that's the only right answer, but what seems to be suggested here is that the presence of the God and love of peace will be with you all following these things. Seems to be what it suggests. Not suggesting it's an overly mechanical thing. I'm not trying to build something overly robust on it, but we have to listen to the relationship between the clauses here, and that's just what it says. Aim for these things and the God of love and peace will be with you. And that's a very exciting prospect, by the way. One that we're going to come back to. It's in a very exciting prospect. Finally, he says, greet. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The holy kiss does not have any precedent in the synagogue life. It seemed to have been developed in the early churches as a distinctly Christian way to greet one another, um, called the holy kiss presumably to distinguish it from some, from some other kind of kiss, a romantic or erotic kind of a kiss. This kiss would not have been on the mouth. It would have been socially acceptable, but it was, it was to communicate something. It was certainly to communicate a warmth and love as part of a family. It was, to be, it was different than a way that you would greet a random person in the marketplace, for example. Uh, many places in many contexts, including definitely many contexts in America, that's not what kissing conveys to most people in most contexts. However, the point still remains. The point still remains that regardless of cultural expression, those in the church are supposed to greet and encounter each other with a desire to express something more than mere formality. With just mere formality. And I'm not talking about you pass someone in the hall and, and you're like, you know, don't say hi because that's too super. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about there should be a substantive level of engagement where you greet people as more than just kind of a, 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 a body walking down the hall. Like you would just meet, talk to someone and work. There's something there. You greet them with something. You bring something into your encounter with people that says, I am greeting you on the foundation of something more than just you're a random human being in front of me. You're part of Christ. We belong together. We're united to Christ. We're part of the same family. And I greet you out of those things. I'm not suggesting you say any particular words or do any particular actions, but that is the idea under this. That's the idea under this, regardless of what individual or cultural expression you give to that. That's the under, underlying idea. And then what might seem a little bit of a throwaway line, Paul says, all the saints greet you. And the all here is, is going to be limited by context. Almost certainly all the saints in Macedonia. It's not like he's saying all the saints in the whole world, some of whom I've never met, greet you. No, it's all the saints in Macedonia who's kind of been talking about and who have given, his, given him support. All of them greet you. People at Corinth are supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss. Folks in Macedonia can't do that because there's no such thing as the long-distance kiss, apparently. But what he is trying to say, he is communicating them, communicating to them that other people are for them and with them and communicating their sense of warmth. We are for you. We are for you. We are with you. 
We are with you as a church. We are rooting for you. And Paul has already talked them up, if you'll recall from earlier in the letter. So he concludes, apparently, listen, though, it's apparently it's important enough for Paul to make sure that this church knows they are not alone. People know who they are. And they send their greetings. They send their greetings to the church. Let me just pause and say, there are so many people cheering for our church. You need to know that the saints send their greetings to you. I understand that you are not on all the phone calls and the text threads and the Marco Polo conversations that I happen to be on. But I want you to know that the saints send their greetings and they are for us. They are for us in the same way they are for the church at Corinth. And Paul closes with one of his most famous benedictions. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Explicitly Trinitarian. The grace of Christ. Christ secures grace by the cross. He lives a perfect life, dies an unjust death, rises from the grave as a guarantor of final judgment over us will be not guilty, resurrection, ultimate hope. If we will just repent and believe the gospel, turn from our sins, the love of God, which is understood to be the Father. You can look at verse chapter 1, verse 2, if you want clarification on that. I'm not just making it up to be Trinitarian. It's clarified explicitly in chapter 1, verse 2. From the foundation of the world, the Father has loved us. And in love, because He so loved, He loved the world in this way, He sent His Son as an act of grace towards us. We all know that from John 3.16. The love of the Father to redeem. The plan of salvation. The Son accomplishes that which gives the fellowship of the Spirit. Now the fellowship of the Spirit has two dimensions. Because one, you have the fellowship of the Spirit, uh, the, the individual Christian's fellowship with the Spirit. This is the Spirit by which we call Abba, Father. An intimate relationship with God. And we somehow, that I can't fully understand, and neither can you, enter into an uh, inter-Trinitarian relationship that just blows my mind and I can't even start to explain it. So don't ask me. But there is fellowship created by the Spirit. And then indwelt Christians have a special fellowship with one another because of the indwelling of the Spirit. This is that language of you are a temple being built together. You are living stones being built together, animated in one sense, by the Holy Spirit of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so the letter ends. And the lector would have closed the scroll. The lector was the person who stood up. Church of Corinth finished the letter. Closed the scroll. 
You can imagine maybe his, maybe his scroll goes down over his face. Maybe he was, and he sees the people that he's reading to. And you're left with a church focused on one thing. Paul's about to come for the third and final time. How are we going to prepare? How is he going to find us in a couple of weeks' time? Did they heed his admonition? Or was this another painful visit that he had to make, as he's already indicated? I think that it was a successful visit. I think that they responded. And I don't think that because I'm an optimist. I think that for two reasons. Number one, in Acts chapter 20, it says that soon after he arrived, Paul actually remained there for three months. Three months. It's a good stay. It's a good stay. Probably almost most many scholars are, think that he stayed there long enough because to write the book of Romans. Book of Romans, written from Corinth. Certainly, if it was, you might suspect that if it was this horrible situation, like this severe letter that grieved them, and he was, I didn't want to come because who would comfort me, that he might not have stuck around quite that long if it was just to accomplish these things and move on. The second thing is the Achaeans, which is going to be the Corinthians in context here. According to Romans chapter 15, they got their contribution in. They prepared, remember quite a bit, particularly chapters 8 and 9, Paul exhorting them to prepare their contribution for the saints in Jerusalem. If you go look in Romans chapter 15, 26, they, they got it done. They got it done. But that's all that we know. That's all we know. Rejoice, be restored, be comforted, agree, live in peace, greet one another, and the God of love and peace will be with you. This is not the only parting manifesto, obviously, in the New Testament. There are other conclusions to letters that are similar. But what would it look like for our church to consider this six-point manifesto at this particular time in our church's history and life right now? Because this is where this text falls today. What would it look like to consider the six-point Corinthian manifesto at the end of this saga? And I want to mention each point. And I want to mention a necessary condition for each point. Not to be confused with a sufficient condition. Necessary meaning you have to have this in order for this to even have a chance. But you probably also have to have more things. What would it look like to corporately live the Corinthian manifesto? Told them to rejoice, but there will be no rejoicing without hope. Without hope. Eternal hope, yes, but also hope for the land of the living. Here, now, hope. If you subtract hope out of the equation, grounded in gospel promises, not groundless optimism, there is no, re there is no foundation for rejoicing in difficult times. If you do not have hope of some kind or another, 
future hope, then rejoicing in the present doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And if we don't challenge ourselves to be more hopeful people, we will hear an exhortation to rejoice in very challenging times. And if we are not tuned into hope in those challenging times, when we hear an exhortation like rejoice, the only thing we will have to say is, you're kidding me, right? You're kidding. Can we save that one for later? There will be no rejoicing without hope. So what would it take for you? What would it take for me? What would it take for us to be more Hopeful, because I think we can all, and that's not, I'm not to say that we aren't a hopeful bunch, but I'm saying certainly probably everyone can improve the amount that they hope and how they hope wisely and how they hope based on gospel promises and grace. If we want to be a rejoicing church, we have to be a hopeful one or we will have no chance of rejoicing. It's number one, no rejoicing without hope. Be restored, he tells them. There will be no restoration without grace. We talked about the connection between our restoration to Christ and the restoration of the body of Christ. Grace must reign supreme. And to have real restoration in cases of serious turmoil or division or scandal or whatever it is. You must have grace. And I want you to hear this challenge. The wonder of grace here, in order for this to work, the wonder of grace, the reality of grace, it has to affect our feelings and the tenor of our soul more than the hurts or divisions. Here's why. If it doesn't, the ceiling for restoration, practically speaking, will remain very low. Maybe at best, polite interaction and move on. That's not mending. That's not restoring something back to what it was. That's some knockoff version of social niceties. But that's only possible if grace, if we are able to absorb grace and it saturates our souls and we can actually, the the feelings of hurt or disappointment or grief or in some sense balanced out by the actual grasping the wonder of grace itself expressed in the gospel. You cannot take very strong, very you cannot take feelings of anger or, or betrayal and hear someone tell you words and that all of a sudden change those things. It doesn't work. I've tried it many times. Learn from me. I've fallen on the sword for you many times on this one. To someone who is hurting, to someone who is angry, to someone who is grieving, the vast majority of the time, some cases, sometimes, you know, at least in this church, it's not that they're lacking of, oh, we need to have a theology of forgiveness or remember the cross of Christ or something. They've got to taste the grace It's like the honey, knowing that it is sweet because you know certain elements of its chemical properties and having the sweetness explode on your tongue when you put some in your mouth. That's what has to happen in order for real restoration to happen. 
when there has been division or when there has been immorality. Grace cannot just be known about, it has to be tasted. And on that foundation, you can have real restoration. Otherwise, the feelings of hurt and grief and anger will press that out. People will know in theory what they should do. They will default to a very low ceiling of social niceties and move on, and it's not restoration. Like I said when I went through the text, when Paul tells the church at Corinth this, he doesn't say it's going to be easy. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. He knows it's not going to be easy. But it doesn't stop him from saying it. There will be no restoration without grace. But there will also be no comfort without awareness. To be comforted, remember that passive voice, it always raises the question, by what? Be comforted by what? And how people answer that question can tell you a lot about them, I have to say. But to a church in a difficult time, Paul says to be comforted by the God of all comfort. Why is God the God of all comfort and why do we need acute awareness of this in order to actually be comforted? I was actually staring at my comforter last night and I was like, look at that, there's a comforter. But I realized like I wasn't being comforted by it. I was standing by my door. You know, there's a way to like really understand everything about a comforter but not experience any of its comfort. There it is, look, it's a comforter. Oh, the comforter, look how plush it is. Oh, look how much warmth it offers. But I'm standing over here cold. Well, it looks like you're not being comforted by the comforter. It just sounds like you know that there is one. And then I got in bed. I was like, this is a lot better. Now, now I'm being comforted by the comforter as opposed to just acknowledging the presence of a comforter. How do I put on the comfort of God in challenging times? And I hope this is something, I'm not going to give a full teased out answer. I hope this is something you talk about in your families, your community groups, whatever the case may be. But I would say straight out of the Psalms. The Psalms is a great place to start. I talked about having to feel and taste grace in, instead of um, uh, feel and taste grace in order to offer restoration. The same thing here. In order to really put on comfort, you can't just know facts about God's comfort. You've got to really be there. You have to be there. The Psalms pressing into the three things, the promises, the purposes, and the persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that knit us together on the foundation of the gospel. The promises, the purposes, and the persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit knitting us together in the gospel. Spend time in those Psalms. There are so many times where David says things that he would get a theological hand slap for from so many people. God, why are you not listening? Give ear to my cry. Why have you abandoned me? And the systematic theologian and all this is like, wow, God is omnipresent. He's not abandoning you, David. You didn't go to seminary. What's the problem? Didn't you read your Bible? You're, you're, you're reading the Psalms with the wrong lens on. There's space for that in the Psalms. God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness is my only companion. But then there's the hope that's on the back end of that. It's the hope that remembers the promises of God and the person of God, puts our trust in God. And so you can simultaneously grieve and be afraid and have deep anxiety 
and yet you can put on the comfort of the God who is a deliverer who sets your feet on the rock. But you won't have any of that without remembering, without awareness, without owning those things and not just knowing about them. There will be no agreement without purpose. You know, being of the same mind, practically, it isn't possible with no context. Okay, just to get to agree, just agree on everything, which is never going to happen ever, ever, ever. And Paul doesn't expect it to. But here's the thing. If we have a collective purpose, we have a collective purpose. We, we will have a foundation for agreeing with one another. And actually, well, we're going to agree on the elements that advance our collective purpose, but that'll actually allow us to disagree on many other things that don't. So in other words, if we have the purpose, we can agree on what's important, and that actually clarifies that, oh, we actually don't have to agree on this vast myriad of other things that might be important like in a second tier or third tier kind of a level, but they're not the ultimate things. They're not the ultimate purpose. You know, the the players on a football team disagree on a ton of things. They disagree on politics and social issues and money and family. In fact, I would suggest that on the average football team, if you took all of their beliefs in general, people disagree more than they agree about the issues. However, when they step on the field, they are of one mind. Everyone agrees they need offense. Everyone agrees they need defense. Everyone agrees they need points on the board. Everyone agrees they're going to run this play. They agree on the mission. They agree on the mission. And because they agree on the mission, it doesn't matter if they disagree on a whole host of other things. Here we're trying, to, we're trying to love God, build the church, and reach the world where we work, live, play, and worship. We're trying to love God, build the church, reach the world where we work, live, play, and worship. And if we can agree on that purpose, and if we can agree on the underlying elements required to accomplish that purpose, faith, hope, holiness, love, grace, then we will free ourselves up to be incredibly united, but with likely an incredible amount of diversity on a vast variety of other issues. And if you get that backwards and you start, so I've got faith, hope, love, holiness, grace, and you start putting other things into that uh, that shouldn't be in there, you're going to end up with problems. Problems. My view on this social issue. My view on this political issue. My, You have to be think this about medicine or what, schooling or whatever the case may be that you might have deep convictions about. That you might have deep convictions about. And that's fine. We want you to hold those convictions. That's fine. But it's not faith, hope. It's not the collective purpose of our church to advance those particular agendas. It's just not. We're not going to divide over such things and it's because we're united on these things. Agree with one another Paul says, there will be no peace without love. Agreement in light of purpose requires understanding. But again, as I mentioned, peace requires something more. It requires the heart. It requires interpersonal situation and not just the head. 
People can agree on things and there'll be still a lot of animosity. There can be pride, greed. They, maybe there can be a lot of hurt. There's a ton of different reasons. But you can agree with one another on hope, faith, love, grace, holiness, and there still not be peace for, vast, for a variety of other reasons. And again, you know that you are at peace when there is an interpersonal feel. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. You know when there's been tension Tension in a church, tension in a family, tension in the workplace. I don't need like to give you a dissertation on what tension is. Everyone understands it, and it doesn't have anything to do in many cases with the facts. Many, maybe sometimes, but you can agree on all the facts. It's interpersonal problems. It's heart. It's I can't bring myself to, to just interact with this person and love this person. I know I'm supposed to, but I just don't. I can't. And there's warring, and there is functional division, even as people smile and say hello. What do we do to be people who love more? Who love more deeply? Because here's this. Listen to this. In times of tension, you will find out often, not always, you often find out who really loves each other and who just liked each other. In times of tension, when things get tough, you will find out who are united together because they liked each other. And who stayed together because they loved each other. Those two things do not have to be mutually exclusive, by the way, just to be very clear. But one is grounded in gospel hope. One is grounded in promises. One is grounded in Christ. The other could be grounded in your interpersonal chemistry with somebody. And that's a foundation of sand to build a church on. I mean, no peace without love. And finally, there will be no greetings without fellowship. In the Sunday school hour, we looked at a couple of exhortations in defense of the church membership that required a corporate, kind of a, a corporate reality in order to fulfill. And this is one of those. You might ask someone if they're just kind of an, I don't need the church, I'm just doing my, how do you greet one another with a holy kiss? But what, how do you do that exactly? I think it's, one of, it's a command that presupposes some things. It assumes some things that you are regularly encountering people that you're not a lone ranger Christian. That you have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Both the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with the Father, but also the way in which the Spirit knits us together. Together, excuse me. The question is, do we have, as, this, as we sang, the ties that bind? Do we have ties that bind? Are you on the periphery of the church to check a box that you go to church but you're not actually in. Listen, please hear us. We've never been, if you can't tell, we're not like a seeker-sensitive church fawning after people to come in to help build up our self-esteem. We want you to be plugged into a church somewhere. If it's not us, that's okay. We have a huge network. of. We'll plug you in. I'll call pastors for you. We will get you plugged into a church. It doesn't have to be this one. But you can't exist on the periphery. How are you regularly greeting the saints and expressing that encouragement, that Hebrews 10.25? Don't get in the practice. Don't abandon. Don't forsake the assembling together as some have been in the habit of doing. No, I'm coming together. I'm greeting people as folks who are on the same team. Let me tell you what happens. If, if, if this doesn't happen regularly, the church becomes, slowly starts to become something else. You know what it starts to become like? My family reunions. Let me tell you about my family reunion just very briefly. Here's how my family reunions work. We went up. Everyone has these goofy t-shirts on. 
looks like it got made by a kindergartner. And um, family name. I'd ask my mom who this person was over there. She'd say, that's your aunt, cousin, whatever. I was like, okay. So how? What, what's their name again? Oh, yeah, okay. And here's the thing. I would go over and I would meet my family, but I meet them like a stranger. Anything in common with them? I don't even know them. Didn't know they were alive until five minutes ago when we walked into the buffet. So I'm asking my parents to coach me up. What's their name? How are we related to them? Oh yeah, okay. Oh, we got that Christmas card. Great. You you meet people who are, in one sense, objectively family, but you don't meet them as family, folks. You meet them as family only in name. And if you abandon this practice of, of greeting one another, again, not to be confused with just saying hi, but encountering one another, encountering each other within the context of Christian fellowship, the church can slowly become like uh, one of my family reunions, which no one wanted to go to. Okay? They went there because they knew they were supposed to, and they were really, really happy to leave. And I would hate that for our church. And I would hate that for any church. And if you were on the periphery of the church, we would encourage you, press into our church, or equally good option, press into some other local church. We'll help you do it. But there's no greeting in this sense. There's no encountering one another as brothers and sisters and family without fellowship. So what would it look like, again, just in closing, to live this Corinthian manifesto? Only you and I, only we collectively can answer that question. And so um, pray that God would give us the grace to do so wisely, to search our own souls, to ask the questions that need to be asked, have the conversations that need to be had so that Christ could get glory in this local church. Let's pray. God, we pray that in this moment, that at this time, we would be a church that rejoices. That we would be a church that aims for restoration. That they would put on the comfort of Jesus Christ, the promises of the gospel, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. That we be of one mind in what unites us together and our purpose. That we would have harmony and peace. And that we would have a supernatural fellowship by which we can greet one another as genuine family. God, we know these things challenging. And yet they were challenging for the church at Corinth when the same exhortations were given. And so we pray for the grace to walk in them well.